Welcome to StoryWise, the podcast designed to give you the in-depth story behind some of our top storytellers as a way to inform, motivate, and inspire you to believe that you too can make your dreams a reality. My name is Jen Grisanti. I am the Story Career Consultant at Jen Grisanti Consultancy, Inc., a writer's consultancy designed to help you accomplish your writing goals and reach your career destination through one-on-one consults, seminars, and teleseminars. And I am so excited to have with me as my guest today, Lawrence Myers. And let me tell you a little bit about Lawrence. Lawrence Myers was born and raised in the town of... Chappaqua. There we go. New York and attended college at Cornell University where he earned a BA in chemistry. Following a year of travel in both the U.S. and abroad, he attended USC School of Cinema Television where he earned his M.A. in film production in 1992. After attracting the attention of notable Hollywood producer Linda Obst and Academy Award-winning director Robert Zemeckis, Lawrence segued into writing and producing. During this period, he has written and or produced over 65 hours of television programming, including the Emmy-winning Picket Fences, The Pretender, The Outer Limits, Early Edition, and Crossing Jordan. He has sold feature film screenplays to 20th Century Fox with Linda Opes and legendary Marvel Comics founder Stan Lee attached as producers and to Warner Brothers with Toby Jaffe producing. He has written material for almost every genre, including drama, comedy, sci-fi, horror thrillers, family, children's entertainment, and experimental. In his role as television producer, Lawrence has routinely responsible for all aspects of production and budgeting, overseeing crews of 150 people, as well as the day-to-day deployment of over 100 million, 130 million of capital during his career. He has written two books, a memoir entitled Teacher of the Year, The Mystery and Legacy of Edwin Barlow, and Inside the TV Writer's Room, Practical Advice for Succeeding in Television, which contains interviews with and wisdom from some of episodic television's most successful showrunners. In 2004, Lawrence turned his attention to the financial markets. He has written hundreds of articles for The Motley Fool, Seeking Alpha, Investor Place, and other online publications. His blogs regularly, he blogs regularly at bighollywood.com about all aspects of popular culture. Today, Lawrence works as a communications professional assisting companies with their own storytelling, brokers financing for niche companies, and is developing a revolutionary new model for the development of television pilots. Very exciting. You are like covering it all. I, I almost feel like <laughs> I, I said too much. You no, know, it's, it's like, I it's love that. It's been a that. pretty interesting ride, that's for sure. Yeah, but I think this is what the entertainment business is evolving into. It's the idea of how do you grow and expand, and you're doing that to all platforms. 
So I applaud that. I think that's fantastic. And even though I, di- I didn't have some of the questions and some of this other stuff, I do want to jump into that because I especially am an intrigued by the idea of a communications professional because I think that's a great arena to be in. Well, you know, it's interesting. You call yourself a, a story career consultant, right, right. which is a great title for yourself because right. today, thanks to the internet, we are not just doing, film and television are not the only forms of story that right. exist. Right. And so uh, anyone who is interested in storytelling in general yeah. needs to think beyond just those two media. Do you know it's interesting you said that because my brand this year is, what how we expanded my brand is uh, telling and selling your story yeah. so that it expands to businesses on every level. And I'm writing my third book, which is Change Your Story, Change Your Life, that is going to put the business side of the business into you know because it into because you have to have a book I'm finding like really I started the business side this year but I haven't really spent a lot of time fueling it only because I don't have the book done yet so once the book is done then it will help yeah it makes it makes a difference to become an expert in something you know I lecture occasionally to college students and tell them if you want to uh make money uh, in story right the first thing you should do is become an expert in something yes and start blogging the crap out of it right because you will get noticed yeah. particularly if you can link that blog through any of the a number of amazing you know um uh uh, systems that exist right now for your material to be seen. It's true because even before I wrote Storyline, I blogged as a Huffing- on the Huffington Post right. for two years as a way to get ready for writing the book. That's and great. So it 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 you're so right. I think it's excellent advice for anyone. I mean, I think there are so many kids coming out of college now who are just like I want to start my own business right out of college, which I think there's merit to that, but. And I do think we're in a day and age, I remember reading the book, What Would Google Do? And they talked about the idea that college kids are going to skip going into the corporate route and just start on their own mm-hmm. because with social media mm-hmm. and everything else, you can become an expert and you can. But my feeling is, I agree. I think you need to go out and get the experience working for somebody else and know another business from top to bottom before you move out into the world of being an expert on that business yeah, and it, story. It's true. Yeah. And, and and story, as uh, I've discovered as you were you know, reading through all of that uh, <laughs> nightmare. Uh, oh, that wonderful stuff. Um, it's, uh, I mean, it's extraordinary because really, my storytelling skills are the reason why I've been successful in all these different yeah. uh, areas. And if you had asked me when I sat down and wrote my first spec script, that I would be doing any of this stuff now. I'd say, what, are you crazy? But it's directly applicable. It is. Stories everywhere. And isn't it, it's wonderful. I mean, it's like you look at story and go, we all have one. We all use it every day, all day. Mm -hmm. So it's all it is is understanding how to use it in a way to bring it back in the way that you want to bring it back, like in the way to sell it so that success can come out of the delivery of story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that is great. Now, I say you have quite an extensive and impressive background. Let's start with at what point in your life did you know that you wanted to be a writer? Um, That's a really great, I was thinking about this all day. And, you know, writing itself was just sort of uh, part 
and parcel of when I was making little Super 8 movies when I was a kid, I guess, right? right. I came out of that 70s generation, the Star Wars generation, and he was making these little Super 8 movies not realizing that, in fact, as the script was sort of like at the time the least interesting part, you know, I wanted to just get and make the movie. Right. And then the real sort of turning point was um, in order to accomplish my goals, it was actually Bob Zemeckis, who was teaching at USC at the time, who, who said, if you want to become a director, become a writer first, because it's the stepping stone. I love it. You know, yeah. from a career standpoint. But the truth of the matter is, directing is, again, it's just another form of story right. telling. And as he always said, it was the hardest part of being a director is not messing up the script. Right. So once he said that, I realized, okay, so now that's where I need to really focus my, my attention and, yeah. my, and my energy. Wow, I love that. And yeah. when you were at Cornell, you were studying. What What did you think you were going to do? When well, you were it was very Cornell? strange. You know, I I was a chemistry major there of all. Oh things, yeah, that's right? right. And you know, it was because it was like, oh, you know, I got to do something practical with my life, not make movies. Right. Um, and, not have fun. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's exactly right. And you know, chemistry was miserable. And right. so, uh, and I remember very vividly it was around. It was junior year, and I was having a terrible time with this one experiment in a in a laboratory when all the other students were doing just fine and mine is you know giving off smoke and fumes and i'm like what is this right and so i just went over straight over was to a the, sign from above clearly <laughs> and and um i'm glad i listened because I, I went straight over to the theater arts building and signed up for a, the film production class i love it that's and great ended up taking uh, film production and film criticism uh, there at cornell as my chemistry uh, requirements were winding down. Oh, so there we go. So that the was, love started there. Yeah, and the it was intrigue. very it's very influential too just, you know, the the people that I was studying under at the time. So. Great. And how was the USC program? Uh, now, this, of course, is back when we used this thing called film. Right. I don't know if your listeners are familiar with it. <laughs> um, it's actually something you handle in your hands, and you actually <laughs> cut with things called splicers and tape. And um, at the time, I mean, it was it was very it was just before it got it before it exploded with money. You right. Know? Uh, you right. Know, so while I was there, I was very fortunate in that Linda Obes taught there, and Bob Zemeckis taught there, and Jeremy Kagan. Um, Those are great teachers. Yeah, you know, yeah. and they just started bringing them in. And uh -huh. so it, it gave, you know, a very firm grounding, of course, in, you know, film history and film criticism, a lot of stuff that I'd already had. And there were, you know, people there who were kind of teaching you story and teaching you how to make movies. And I don't right. think I recognized at the time that even a lot of the quote unquote no name faculty really knew their stuff. And, right. I, and I certainly didn't appreciate how much a lot of them had to offer at the time. Right. Um, but most importantly for me at the time was just the contacts that were available and the fact that I somehow impressed, you know, the people who were in a position to advance a, a career. Isn't it wild when you think of back then and you look at those instructors and then you think, would I ever be doing this someday? Mm -hmm. And yet, I think I think I think the greatest thing about teaching right now is that it's such a gift to be able to see growth mm -hmm. in a student and see them hit aha moments. Yes. And know that like the value that you learned from others is being passed forward. Yeah. You know, how how do you feel about teaching? It's you know, it's great. I did I did a, a stint at UCLA mm -hmm. uh, a number of years ago and just I always feel like whenever I'm hearing pitches from somebody I've just developed, I guess, a, a talent to be able to yep. to do a surgical strike, if you will, and, and kind of really get them focused on the things that need to be fixed or changed yeah. or, or inspire them yes. to take something beyond what it is that they had. For me, that's sort of really great because then you do have that aha moment yeah. when you see it and they're like, oh, well, that's great because then it's like a feeling of 
having inspired someone. Yes. And there's nothing better nothing than that. Nothing better. It's like why we do this and why we love what we do. Absolutely. It's such a big part of it. So tell me, with Linda Opes and Robert Zemeckis, so this was kind of a starting point for you as far as the door opening. Yeah. Tell us about that. So, uh, I mean, it could not have been a better start to a career. I mean, uh, Linda Opes was teaching a a screenwriting class, and, uh, you know, we would meet at her house, about 10 of us. What? Yeah, and you know, I remember it's it's a great story. It's just you know, there was the day we, we were all supposed to bring in a scene in which we introduced a character of our of our screenplay. Right. And uh, at the time, uh, she had this guest in class, a guy who was up and coming and just had a big script sold named Akiva Goldsman. Mm-hmm. So he was there. Yeah. And huge. Uh, so everybody, you know, kind of read their scenes, and I re- had read this scene. It was doing a, a sort of a retelling of the the Legend of Sleepy Hollow, and it took place in this classroom. Ichabod Crane was a a teacher. Right. And I co the voice of uh, a teacher I had had in high school who I ended up writing a memoir about. Right. Uh, and the class just ate it up. They loved it. And Linda thought it was the greatest thing she ever heard. And I'm like, what? What Was that good? Really? I, I just kind of wrote it. And, uh, How you know, exciting. Yeah. And so next thing I knew, uh, you know, she hooked me up with her brother, who Rick Rosen, who is now one of the partners of Endeavor or rather yeah. WME. And I had an I had agent. no idea that was her brother. Yeah. Wow. And, um... And, you know, this was at the same time, I think, that Bob Zemeckis had taught uh, the advanced 480 class, whatever right. it was back then, where I was a writer. And Bob had uh, offered everyone in the class an opportunity to pitch Tales from the Crypt episode, mm-hmm. which I did. Right. Um, and so it all happened kind of very quickly that, you know, I had this credit from Zemeckis, this, you know, contact with Linda Obst, uh, potentially getting a movie push forward with her she brought me in on a studio pitch you know suddenly I was with ICM and it just you know it all happened at once it happened very very quickly wow and and very it was very exciting and you know within two years after that three years after that you know I was on uh, my first staff job on picket fences and had sold a feature with Linda and Stan Lee um, to Fox. So I'm like, like Orson Welles said, I, I started at the top and worked my way down. What was it? I love Picket Fences. What was it like working on that show? What was David Kelly like then? Well, you know, I, it's funny. We came in, I came in on the fourth season and David, okay. David had stepped away from the oh, show. Okay. But what had happened was my mentor, Jeff right. Melvin, who I'd met. I love um, Jeff Melvin. He was one of my guests Okay, on yeah, yeah. Sorry. So Jeff is, as you know, is yeah. great. Yeah. Uh, he had read my material when he was on Northern Exposure. Right. Uh, he had almost gotten me staffed on Northern Exposure which right. would have been fantastic. Right. But then he took over Picket Fences, knew I loved the show, and he hired me. And so that right. was my first staff job. He was good to his word. He said he would hire me when he had his own show. And it was it was both the best and worst of both worlds because it was a perfectly nurturing environment. You know, uh, on the staff were him, John Worth, wow. uh, Nick Harding. Um, wow. Uh, Dawn um, Presswich, Presswich and Nicole, Nicole Yorkin, yeah. Ellie Herman. Oh my uh, gosh, yeah, just, that's a great. St- I remember yeah. hearing about that. Great yeah. group of people, and you know, uh, it, it was unfortunate in the sense that I could n- not have asked for any uh, better, more nurturing staff because I was completely spoiled, and so right. everything from then on could never possibly live up to that. Right. And it was a difficult environment because David had stepped away from the show. Jeff wanted to do his own thing with the show, which he did. We were completely on board with it. But it created some tension, I think, yeah. between David's people and Jeff's. And um, personally, we're proud of all fantastic 22 episodes that we did. That's and, great. And it was just for me. It but was in a those great politics, I think, are a very normal part of the writer's completely. experience. Yeah. You know, because I think in every room, and it's good for everyone to know, because I always like people to know the good, the bad, and the ugly of being a working writer, because 
it's not all great. Yeah. You know, there are moments where there's tension and there's drama and yep. whose side are you on? Are you on this side? Or are you on that side? And if you're on that side, therefore then, yep. you know, so I, I think uh, that was a good first experience. Well, it was. Through. I mean, I mean, yeah. there were certainly politically, I learned a lot and got caught up in some of it. And um, it, it's, a, it's a really good education. I think anyone who wants to become a writer should also be studying politics and watching politics, yes. not yes. from an ideological standpoint, but yeah. watching the game. Yeah. Watching how it's played. The strategy. And, and, and yeah. watching what people are saying and what they're doing and what they're really trying to accomplish. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I have to admit, it is, I was saying to this young girl today who just graduated uh, from grad school, and I said, you know, she's like, sometimes I feel like I have to go through all this life stuff to learn. And I said, yeah, but that's how we learn. You yeah. have to make the mistakes in order to see what not to do. Yeah. And that's just part of the process. It's not like any of us are born knowing. I, I talk to so many writers who tell me about these experiences in the room where you wouldn't know. Mm -hmm. So it's not like they give you a book when you walk into a room and you know everything you're supposed to and not supposed to do and you're supposed to really completely understand the temperament of what the writer's room is. So, yep. you know, it's, you learn as you go. Yeah. Yeah, you know? it's very much. It's very much, and hopefully you don't make a fatal mistake. Yes. Um, and in, along the line, yeah, but people t also tend to be forgiving, you know, because yeah. they kind of know, oh, you're green, you don't get it. It's yeah. Okay. And everybody was there yeah. at one point. Everybody yeah. had to start somewhere. Yes. Looking at all the writing staffs that you've been on, how would you say TV and the way we tell story, which we touched on at the beginning, on this platform has evolved since you first started writing for TV? Um. Well. I haven't been in the writer's room for a number of years, but right. what I can tell you is the way that stories have been told or are being told in television have drastically changed. I remember actually about a year ago, I went back and looked at one of my old Picket Fences episodes and I was sort of shocked at how leisurely the pacing was. Yes. And I liked it. Yeah. You know, the, the episode played great. But then you look at what's going on today and it's like, what the hell is going yes. on? They're, they're cutting every two seconds. Yes. Yeah. And some of it's good in that they push story up and make it move very quickly right which can be very beneficial depending on your genre right um but uh that the sort of pacing and the leisureliness of it has has vanished and um it's strange because it almost feels reflective of the increasing level of nervousness of the industry you right know? it right. almost seems to be reflective that people are seem more frantic than they ever were before yeah and everything is more unsettled and uncertain yeah. Um, but the storytelling and the, and the sort of need to, um, it, it seems less reliant on truthful moments and real human moments. Right. And more uh, designed to um, sell someone that they are watching a really compelling program. Interesting. Uh, a friend of mine, I was talking to a very experienced writer. We had lunch last week, and he's like, you know, is it just me, or do you feel like as you're watching television, there are parts now that you come to where you realize, oh, this is where I can get up and go to the bathroom. Right. Right? Right. Uh, because it's it the beat is so completely unoriginal. Yeah, the formula. Yes. Well, it's interesting because I, I, I think back to when I started in 1992 in Aaron Spelling's office, and I – I say, you know, I remember story then, like the strategy behind the act breaks was not nearly there then. It was almost mm -hmm. like you hope you're going to hit 
an emotional moment at the act break. And if you don't hit it in the script, then you will hit it in the editing room or Aaron will know how to get it where it needs to be. And and they're really what like today, I feel like there's such a um, I think for some shows, there is a brilliance. I am a believer as an analyst for almost 20 years now that structure, if done well, make story better i just am yeah you know and when i look at people who have gotten to a point in their career where they can throw structure out the window and still deliver strong story i do applaud them and i study it and i think sometimes it works for them and sometimes it doesn't right and so it, I think stru- structure is there for a reason. Absolutely. And I think as it's evolving, I do agree with you that there. Are, when we look at some of the incredible writing that's out there last, right now, like when you look at Game of Thrones. But it, it's interesting, too. Like when you look at Game of Thrones and you look at Mad Men and you think they both shows start very, very slow. And then work up through mm-hmm. the season into this crazy versus like, say, a show like Breaking Bad that will start off huge mm-hmm. and then continue that pace or Homeland. Mm-hmm. Have you seen Homeland? I haven't, but oh. I've seen Breaking Bad and I know yes. exactly what you're talking about. Homeland. Mm-hmm. Homeland probably was the best first season of TV I think I've seen in my entire career. Well, I'm going to yeah. have to put yep. that up against Deadwood and I think yes. you're going to have a hard time. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Really? Yeah. Okay. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's going to be interesting. Mm-hmm. I'll be curious to hear your thoughts mm-hmm. on that. Um, let's see. So what is, now I do notice you seem to gravitate toward, even though you've done everything, certain types of genre. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Would you say? Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly. The sci-fi, fantastical. Yeah. Certainly my own taste has yeah. always been in that direction. Right. In sci-fi and fantasy in, in, uh, um, worlds that are different from ours, right? Uh, because I think it broadens the ability to um, use uh, metaphor and uh, analogy and create, you know, stories where you can bury the subtext a little bit deeper than you otherwise might normally be able to, right? Um, so you can tell these so the parables. Freedom is there. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And it's just imagination too. You know, again, yeah, it's a lot of it's also just the influence of when I grew up. Yeah, you know, in Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark and Close Encounters and all those great yeah. movies, the blockbusters that changed everything for us. Yeah, uh, and so I, that that really impacted my own thinking. But it also it's just it's just creates it's more active imagination. I agree. You know, um, worlds that we haven't seen before. Yeah, I think there's some, and yet finding the universal moments in those worlds. Yes, exactly. Which is, by the way, why I think Deadwood is the greatest television show ever made, because we are in a completely different world where people are speaking Milchian, Shakespearean, and yet uh, if you watch that show, uh, there are, uh, I mean, it's completely universal in terms of power, greed, love, hope, all those things are there. I think, I definitely agree with you that it was brilliant. I do. Um, And I think that like when I look at Homeland, it's a different type of brilliance. Mm-hmm. Metaphor is a huge part of the brilliance, and subtext is a huge part of the brilliance on Homeland, um, and characters that blow your mind. Mm-hmm. Like the idea of, I remember when I was at Spelling, that there were shows pitched with bipolar leads, but they never went anywhere. Yeah, right. And I remember like four years ago, there were three big shows with bipolar leads, didn't go anywhere. Right. So the fact that one finally has gone somewhere and it's working to the extent that it is, mm-hmm. I think is huge. Yes. You know, so I, I think making those types of breakthrough with character 
helps everyone. It does, yeah. for sure. Absolutely. It, I, I think, uh, so let's see. What are uh, some of the things that you wish people had told you about what it was to be a working TV writer? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, definitely, well, we touched on it before, which yeah. was the, the, the political aspects uh, that, that go on. Because in some ways, it's frustrating because writing is almost the the last job that you do on the show, on a, on a television show. And this is where also, having learned later than I wish I had about communications yeah uh because communications and politics are intrinsically um uh, intertwined and the idea that when you're sitting there in a room you shouldn't have to think about politics you shouldn't have to worry about any of this stuff because all that does is distract you from telling the story Mm -hmm. and the idea that in a really great room hopefully that is in fact you know not the case that you can concentrate on a story but the idea that as a same friend that I had lunch with a couple of weeks ago said to me, he's like, you know, I now realize at this point in my career, which I'd realized earlier, which is I am there to execute somebody else's vision. Mm-hmm. I have to be a good soldier. Yeah. And so uh, I wish that those that's what I wish I'd been told, that's because because it's not about pressing your own vision as much as you would like to. It's not your show. Right. It's about doing the best you can with your craft and telling the story in the best way you can that fits what the showrunner wants. It's like figuring out, you know, what questions the professor is going to ask on your exam in yes. college. Yeah. That's kind of how you have to think of it. Those are definitely the things I, I wish I had been made aware of. And I think, you know, speaking to that, I, I think that the dynamic of the writer's room is very much like the familial dinner table mm-hmm. where every child is trying to get attention, trying to say something smart, trying to feel loved, trying to feel validated. And and you look at it and you go, so I think new when you're a newer writer, the ego is still a yes. part of the experience. Yes. And, and it, it is. And so it's like you have to move through the recognition and make mistakes to get where you got in the recognition of seeing that. And you have you to know? look. You have to look at the process uh, holistically, and yeah. you can't do that unless you you remove your ego from the equation. Yeah, which is you are part of a whole that is constantly moving. It's like an amoeba. It's you know, there's just all this stuff going on, and the more you attempt to enforce your will on that process, the more you're going to get resistance yeah. from the other side and you will end up in stasis. Yes. And that's why instead the approach is to uh, behave as if right. uh, you are everything that you are doing is incredibly important, yes. but never share that knowledge with yes. anyone else, if yeah. that makes any sense. Yes. You know, I'm going to, I hope I don't throw you for a loop with this question, yeah. but I always like writers to be honest about this. So have you ever lost a job as a writer? Um, did I lose a job as a writer? No. Um, That's good. I was fortunate in that regard. Let me think. I have to wonder if an option would have been picked up on right. a show. Right. But fortunately, I had an the offer. The show wasn't picked up. The sh- so. No, the show was. <laughs> okay. But but I got an offer from another show before the end of that right. first season. Right. And I'm like, well, I could stay here and be miserable or I could go over here and right. do what seems like it might be well, fun. Well, that's but, wonderful. Well, that's yeah. huge. Although you could say, you know, I mean, 
I pulled myself out of Hollywood, you yeah. know, but on the other hand, what, Hollywood what triggered that? Ki- well, I, I wonder how much of that it was really actually Hollywood kicking me out also, oh. because <laughs> at a certain point, it just becomes really difficult yeah. to get work. I mean, I was a mid-level producer, right. which, and that's the, that's what was getting cut out. You right. know, now ever the past, what, 10, 12 years, it's been, we hire A-listers and we hire new people. Right. And the mid-level was getting cut out. That's fascinating. I hadn't you know? thought about it that way. And so a lot of... Uh, my colleagues and I were mm-hmm. starting to find that the jobs were very difficult to, to come across. Right. And it was getting harder and harder to kind of stay afloat. And after a while, I realized I'm trying to enforce my will in the universe. And the universe is telling me not that this path that I've been on, that it's time to change that path. Right. And so uh, it takes uh, – it's a big blow to one's ego to say, you know what, um, I'm going to listen to the universe. And yeah. w- wouldn't you know it, uh, everyone I know is saying to me, you're so smart to have gotten out. Yeah. It's been so brutal. And when the, the universe meantime, nudged like, me, I have to say, uh, as, as devastating as it was in the moment, it's such a gift. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're give, being given a kick in the pants. Yeah. And you have to listen to it, yes. uh, even though you don't want to, because yeah. the whole idea is you're you're being called to take a different path. Yeah. That path may lead you back. Yeah in this direction, which has always been my plan, yeah. which is if I'm going to get back in, involved in this, it's going to be with property and material that I own, that I have financing for. Yay. And now being, having Huge been involved, lesson. yes, yeah. in, in the financial world, right. I now actually have access to that capital. I love it. So it's, it you know, it's a matter now of convincing them that they're not going to lose all their money if they actually, you know, put something up with me. Yeah. So I have, so I have a responsibility to create a business model for them where they won't. I love it. Okay, and we are going to get into that when we get back. We are going to take our first break. And we are here with Lawrence, or Larry Myers, as he likes to be called, uh, who is also an author. And we're going to get into this when we get back of the Inside the TV Writer's Room. This is Jen Grisanti. You're listening to StoryWise with entertainment consultant Jen Grisanti. StoryWise is a podcast designed to give you the story behind the people who tell stories, offering you insight on what it takes to work as a writer in television and film. Hear this and other podcasts on www.jencrisanticonsultancy.com, a full-service writer consultancy committed to guiding your vision. We are back with Larry Myers. So my next question for you is what has your favorite staffing experience been thus far and why uh well that's easy we we talked about it earlier with mm. picket fences and um it was uh it, it was great because we everyone was very excited to be on that show mm-hmm. and uh you know for me it was working with a mentor it was also working with just some really smart and talented people mm. but it was an environment that was nurturing and even like you know really stupid ideas uh sure they get shot down and maybe they'll make a joke or whatever but you but i knew that i was as a staff writer there that people like me they were supportive of me and um it was just all about really kind of creating the best television show that we could mm-hmm. which is what it ideally should be about yes you know the egos that at least the ones that i saw just weren't there it, yeah with, with, with the group and everyone sort of kind of knew what they were there to do well what a beautiful group of voices yes. when you think about and i think jeff like even having Jeff in here, it's like Jeff. I think is probably one of the most intelligent human beings I think I've ever met. Yeah. I mean, and so and yet a warmth. Yeah. Within that high, high intelligence. Yes. You know, and in I mean, all of you. My God, when you look at your 
degrees. It, yeah, I love it, and and I get inspired by it. But I think it starts from the top. Yeah, oh, when it, you have the yeah. positive experience, and Absolutely. I and I like to believe that people pass that forward. Like that, you look you as you're going up uh, level wise. That you look at what doesn't work for you, like what yep. hurts your spirit, and you hope that people don't repeat that. Yep. Versus mimicking yes. what they saw done. Well, the man, yeah. it's it's it, it comes down to the management style of yeah. all these different uh, showrunners that I've worked for. Yeah. But the thing is, what underlies that management style ultimately is the big problem with our industry, which is that everyone is driven and motivated by fear. Yeah. And that is the worst possible motivator, not just for our industry, but for life. Yeah. You cannot succeed if the person who you are supposedly following is being motivated by fear. Yeah. And it's not their fault they're being being motivated right. by fear. The industry, by its nature, yeah. is dependent upon success, which cannot be predicted. Yes. You cannot predict success, which I think I talk about in the book. And if you cannot predict success, then all people do is react trying to control yes. something they can't control. Yeah. And when they jobs are on the line, as you probably knew yeah. and experienced, oh, yeah. uh, then I saw it fear. I saw many showrunners fired. And, and I think part of that chipped away at my own spirit. You're right. Because... I think looking at the process of letting somebody go was so cold and so calculated, and it hurt. Mm -hmm. Like it went against my being mm -hmm. when when you, you were told things like "Don't return phone calls, don't return emails, mm -hmm. don't." And it's like the value never existed. Right. And that's difficult. Yeah, it, it's it's it is, and it it's not. I mean it, the. The business has always been like that, mm -hmm. uh, which is unfortunate. And but it, then it, it kind of demonstrates that you can't be a weak person and no. a weak leader. You have to, yeah, agree. You, you have to, you know, uh, be strong, yeah. and direct. But at this, and and in some cases, pretend to be, you know, a monster if yes. you need to be, and jump yeah. up and down and scream up and down because that's the only way you can hold on to what you've got. Yes, and tell people. No, I'm not doing that. Yeah. And I hope you don't get fired. But, you know. you know, it's interesting. I remember one specific experience where where we were with the person who co-created, if I remember correctly, the show. And everyone in the room knew that the next day it was going to be coming to an end. And, and when this person was told the next day... Immediately, he tried calling everybody and couldn't get anybody, so he calls me. So I got the grunt. Like, mm -hmm. he said words that I wouldn't even repeat. Mm -hmm. And I remember I remember in that moment thinking, what am I doing? Mm -hmm. Like, really? Like, I know this person, and I know saying those things isn't part of who they are. Right. And, and yet this experience mm -hmm. has pushed them to that level. Yeah. And that, like, really made me think about things. Yeah. You know? Now, that's the tragedy of the business yeah. is that it is as aw as awful as it is, and it actually doesn't need to be. Right. Uh, but it's And that's what I always nature. say to writers. Like, don't get involved in the politics. Like, do the work. Yeah. And make your joy mm -hmm. be attached to the work, period. Yep. That's all you can do is focus yeah. on process. It's the one thing you can control. Yeah, the process is yeah. the only thing you can control. Yeah, it is. It's so true. Um, now, let's see. Who have you learned the most from mentor-wise? Well, I mean, I think Jeff, for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, 
I mean, the lessons are just sort of too countless to, men- uh, to mention, but I, I will say that one thing that has always stuck with me, which I learned from him on Picket Fences and is constantly echoing my in my head, is make your dialogue conversational. We have a tendency to, like, you know, want to ramble on and make these beautiful monologues and so on. My goal now is to actually fill a script with as few words in right. the dialogue as possible. Right. Uh, and, Let's and, say and, so know, much. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, that really made a difference because when you look at, like, Mamet, who I love, you yes. know, he does the same sort of thing. Uh, you know, he obviously can go on at length sometimes, but he managed to say a tremendous amount with a lot of clipped speech. Um, and I think it's I, I learned more from gift. him. Yes. When you look at it and you look at somebody who does it, well, I remember my ex-husband used to write these cards where there'd be three lines and they would say so much, yeah. whereas mine took like two <laughs> full pages. You yes, know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, I wish I could do that. And yet now I'm so much more aware of it. Yes. And now you understand editing, editing, editing. And as an analyst, when you see so many words, like you want to say, like simplify. Mm-hmm. What are you trying to say? Yep. Period. Yep. And and do that. Yes. Don't flower it so that you can show everybody else how much you know. Yes. Like get to the point of what is being said. Which is you why, know? you know, I think if people ask me today, you know, you always get the question, should I go to film school? And I'm not sure I can answer that question right. anymore because USC is so different than when I was there. Right. In terms of what it involves. But I'm. I feel like the, the almost the degree people should be getting uh, undergrad these days is communications. I was a communications. Uh, you were okay. Yeah. You were smart at USC. And oh, I have you were to okay. Say, yeah, yeah, that's why I said I was mm. enthralled. Yeah, right. Because quite honestly, I had thought about when I was a communications undergrad, and I had twelve classes in cinema, so I was able to declare a minor, an undeclared minor, or whatever it was called. But, um, but. I was fascinated with communications then because remember them telling us you get your MFA in communications, then you can be a communications consultant and make like $500 an hour <laughs> and this and that. And I was like, okay, that sounds like a good job. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and, and, but as it turns out, and I didn't even recognize this right. until the past couple of years, is that what you just said is get to the point. It's like, well, what are you trying to communicate mm-hmm. from every line that you write, every yeah. word? Yeah. It has a there is an intent behind it, yes. which is by the way where acting comes in also. Yeah. Uh, and the question is what what are you trying to communicate in yeah. that sentence, in that word, with that image? And communication is happening all the day, every day, every time you step outside. Yes. And you will become a better writer if you just go outside and I pay agree. attention to the conversations yeah. you have. Yeah. And other people are having. Now, with dialogue, because I know so many writers, that's such a problematic area. How would you say, like, Jeff's gold nugget was conversational dialogue doesn't need to be as Mm -hmm. complete, Mm -hmm. as full as what we think. How would you say over the years, like, you did exercises to really grasp that? Because I have to say, like, I remember, like, I had you up for a lot of shows. I remember thinking of you for a lot of shows. I, I don't think I got big, any of them. Thanks. Big you fan didn't, you of your writing, enough, though. Jen. No, <laughs> but I definitely, because I covered a lot of sci-fi. Oh, that's right. So I always remember mm-hmm. you were, like, the go-to person that I was always interested. I don't think you were ever available when we truly oh, had, thank, thanks. you nice know, compliment. big stuff. Yeah, yeah but cool. you definitely were always on my list. And and looking at dialogue, like how would you say you evolved in really perfecting? Yeah, dialogue? It, you know, it's it's you. I, I've const it's constantly um, developed. It always changes, you know. Yeah. Uh, and much of it has to do with whatever uh, material I am uh, presently fascinated with. Mm-hmm. Um, 
filtered also through everyday conversation. So, for example, I went through this huge mammoth phase, right? So right. I was completely into mammoth. And so yeah. I was like, all right, I've got to figure out how to do what he does, right? Yes. Yeah. And then that morphs into something else. Yeah. You know, then I'm like uh, way into um, whoever. It's like me with Joseph Campbell. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. You know, or, uh, and, and, um, and so a lot of it, uh, the way I have always written it has been to literally walk around in a room talking out loud, yeah. taking on the roles of the characters, yeah. and feeling my way through what it is that they are trying to communicate, yeah. what they're trying to say or what they're, or not saying, yeah. and then whittling it down to be as you know uh, lean as possible. Yeah. And then I always have to remind myself, but when I am out and about, if I'm just hanging out, if I'm in line at the store, I'm paying yeah. attention mm-hmm. because – the conversations, the verbal and nonverbal communication, you can – the stories you can just pick up from a few minutes, you mm-hmm. know, of watching people or li- overhearing people at a bar or, or sitting in a restaurant. You will pick up stuff, which mm-hmm. is, you know, it helps also with uh, specifying and distinguishing a character in terms of how they speak. Yeah. And I still have not come close to mastering that. Do you know, mm. but I think writing is always like I remember. I I was reading the book. I I read so many books; it's scary. And I I remember reading the book um, called Writing Well. I forget who the author was, but I think she was like a Yale professor, and she talks about the idea of how we've gotten so far off base of what real writing is, and and really like looking at simplicity and looking at less is more. As we're, as we're talking about. And so it really, I think we're all always learning. Mm-hmm. I don't ever think you perfect writing. Mm-hmm. I don't ever think you get to a point where it's like, oh my God, I ha- I know all the rules. It's all figured out because I think writing and story comes through us. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, there are going to be points in our life where it comes through us in a deeper way because of what we're interpreting and uh-huh. how we experience it. Yes. And there are going to be times when it's more in a surface way. Yeah, you know. uh, and well, and you know, every time I think I've got to figure it out, then you know, I'll something will come along like Deadwood, and I'm mm-hmm. like, oh my god, yeah, look at the use of language here. You but know? you know what? That never goes away. It was fascinating. I remember being at the WGA and seeing the panel of Oscar-nominated writers, mm-hmm. right? And I remember, I forget who it was. Sorkin was on mm. the panel for the Social Network. And someone said, one of the other Oscar-nominated writers said, I picked up Sorkin's script, and all I could think was, I will never write as good as this man writes. Right. And yet, this person was nominated for an Oscar. Right. And I thought, it never goes away. Uh-huh. Like, you're always... And then you'll have other people who will look at Sorkin's script. It was 168 pages. Um who is the guy that uh, that directed the uh, George Clooney movie this year? Oh, I forget. Oh, 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 Alexander Payne. Yes, thank yeah. you. So Alexander Payne said something so interesting on the panel. Uh, I know my mind just went blank on that. <laughs> uh, Alexander Payne said something so fascinating on the panel. And he said, I think the perfect page count for a script, from a director's point of view, is 90 to 94 pages mm-hmm. because he said that 
gives the director, it gives the story a chance to breathe, mm-hmm. and it gives the director room, mm-hmm. which I thought was fascinating. Mm-hmm. Well, you know? yeah, well, it and makes here sense. he's got Sorkin on the panel with the 168 page <laughs> script, and I thought, oh my god, isn't this interesting? Well, it's well, you know, it's yeah. uh, in Mammoth's I think first book, he always talks about you know, and his scripts I think are pretty lean because he's he doesn't put in anything right. where the characters are doing anything quote unquote interesting. He right. doesn't want them doing that. That's yes. for the director to figure out. Yeah. That's certainly one way to approach it, for yeah. sure. Oh, there's ego involved in that. Of course. Political situation yes. as well. So tell me, going on to, and I love your book. Your book oh, actually you. reminds me of like information people get from my podcast series. So it's good for all of you listening <laughs> out there, because we have many of you to go out and buy the book inside the TV writer's room, because it's a very similar experience where you are diving into the story of our top storytellers and you are like I loved there were so many things I actually should have brought the book I had so many folded down pages I loved first of all I loved your voice within the interpretation of what other people were saying too it was great um I remember I think it was Sean Ryan it was fascinating to me when we when you were talking about your voice in writing and he talked about how he was always smaller than everybody else. Yeah. And when he went on the soccer field, everything evened out. Yeah. And it was like writing. And I thought, how wild. So you're thinking of Vic Mackey. And you're thinking about it from the point of view and the perspective of the creator who ha- who came from this. T- it, it was fascinating. Yeah. Now, there was so much I learned from all these showrunners. In fact, I, I left every meeting thinking, Boy, I'd really like to work for this guy or yeah. woman, and and yeah. you know they all brought such interesting stuff to the table, and it was very difficult to distill all of that material down to stuff that was useful, yeah, uh, and that I could communicate to the audience. But um, you did a good job, like oh, Vanessa thanks. Taylor, who's a very close friend of mine, ah, right. who's on Game of Thrones. You know, you got there were some very deep stuff. I mean, Vanessa's very deep. Period. Yeah, I, I got yeah. that impression. Yeah. In fact, I actually have to say, you know, I met a lot of really interesting people. Yeah, Vanessa. I was just totally captivated by it because yeah. she was so clearly operating at this spiritual level, I right? Agree. Yeah. And I'm like, what's she doing on Jack and Bobby? You know, yeah. this there and and she was talking about like you know, do, writing prose in it for you know a clash she had with Russell Banks. I'm like. I want to see her doing something. And now she's on Game of Thrones. Now like she's on Game of Thrones, them, right? and she has a big movie coming out, Great Hope Springs, with uh, Meryl Streep, oh, Steve wow. Carell, and Tommy Lee Jones. Oh, wow, great. Good August. for her. Yeah. I think there's, like, so much stuff going on there. That yeah. I, I left that. That was one of those uh, meetings where ah, I wanted to talk about so much more than, than we got to. Yes. You know? Yeah. It is, but but um, my God, I mean, you had Jason Kadams, you had Sean Ryan, you had Tim Kring, you had Vanessa, you had Carol Barbie, you had so many amazing names. Yeah. Like, what would you like? What were some of the what was some of the information that surprised you? Like, even made you mm-hmm. go, "Oh my God, I had never thought about it that way." Well, I think the the depths to which certain people like Carol, Frank Military, yeah, uh, I'd put. Vanessa in this category also the depths to which they I think go as writers despite the difficulties of television yeah that they are still able to access that uh, plane of creativity yeah. if you will that is very moving and meaningful and like uh, with Jason Kadams in particular my yeah. impression was that he gives his writers that room yeah uh, to um, 
to go to yes. where they're not operating out of a place of fear. We yeah. Know, maybe they are. And they just but that really showed up well. if you think about Friday Night Lights and Parenthood. Yes. I mean, there you have to be in a safe place to hit those emotional moments. Uh, totally. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think that was sort of the big... The biggest surprise was that you you that there were still people who were able to hold on to that um, right. that degree of uh, of creativity. Now your memoir tell tell us the story behind your memoir. Oh, what yeah. was that experience like? So uh, talk about a project that I bit off more than I could chew right, right from the beginning. So I had a teacher in high school uh, named Edwin Barlow, right? And he was if you know football, you'll understand he was the Bill Parcells of the classroom. If right. you don't understand football, you can imagine uh, if you ever saw the Paper Chase with John Hausman, this John Hausman times ten. I mean, he was this powerful presence who would sit in the back of the classroom and uh, you know had this. Uh, if you look at the book online at mrbarlow.com, uh, that's M-I-S-T-E-R-B-A-R-L-O-W, uh, you know, you'll get a look at this guy and think, whoa, you know, that's a scary looking guy to have behind you the whole time. Right. And he just insisted on 100% of your intellectual capability when you went into that classroom. Right. And if you didn't give it, you'd get ripped apart. Right. And uh, it's completely politically incorrect. And yet, uh, he was an extraordinarily popular teacher. He lifted D students to become A students mm-hmm. um, and pushed us all to succeed. So the big mystery oh, with I him, though, that. is that he taught at the school for 35 years. Wow. And nobody knew anything about him. Interesting. Literally a complete mystery. I mean, to the point that he actually uh, perpetuated myth about right. himself. Fascinating. And he was instrumental to me. Uh, right. I went back for help during college. But he also just would drop in these uh, pieces of life wisdom in these classes uh and and when he died in 1990 uh, you know a number of years later i was like who was this guy right and when i saw saving private ryan uh i remembered there were rumors that he'd been in the war and i thought could he have been one of these guys who stormed the beach and so now i'm my my head spinning and i'm obsessed right and i can't let go why would someone when he died Literally, he had apparently no surviving family. Right. Turned out he had one surviving brother who had cut, he'd cut himself off from in 1960 from his entire family. Right. He had a half million dollar estate that he left entirely to charity. Yeah. It was just this mystery. There was yeah. like a total cipher. And I'm like, we all spend all our days creating stories about ourselves to leave behind. This guy seemed to no want story. to do the opposite. How fascinating. Yeah. So uh, it took five, six years of my life researching who he was. Right. And I eventually discovered the whole story, little bit by little bit, you know, hundreds of emails and interviews with faculty and students and people who knew him at some point. And then the big nightmare was then actually sitting down to try to actually write a story about this guy's life because it was so all-encompassing. And it went through draft after draft after draft of years and years and years of work. Oh, my god! How much of myself should I put in the story? People right. seem to like it. Some people don't seem to but like you're gonna it. But you're going to add – you have to add fiction to the truth in that story. Well, in time. this particular case, I didn't. Wow. Uh, it's all nonfiction. Um, wow. And it was more a, a, a question of structure. Right. And bringing the audience into the world and his world as I saw him. Well, and it's very universal. I mean, the idea of looking at somebody who had a massive influence on 
growth. Yes. On student growth. Yeah. I mean, that's huge. I love the idea of that. How did? How is the book doing? Uh, it's it's doing really well. I mean, right. I, I I deliberately kind of kept. Uh, I wanted to keep it kind of special and keep it more uh, as much as possible for my hometown and for the people who knew him and not you know blow it out uh, through you know. Uh, some gigantic publisher who would just kind of put it out there and forget about it. Right. So I took a very careful approach with it. But it's a, it's a very moving what story. What about feature rights? Uh, I have the feature rights. Uh, have you I, thought about oh, that? Oh, many times. Yeah. But again, it's I'm waiting for the right people, and yeah. I'm waiting to make sure that I have control over the project. Yeah, because I think that there's something there. Uh, yes. Because when, when you look at, like, Tuesdays with Maury, yeah. like, you, you think of the story of these special beings that come into our path and yes. leave such a strong imprint. And his story, yeah. as it also turned out, was yeah. um, uh, uh, very much an American story yeah. because he did fight in the war, yeah. and uh, he was very much a member of the greatest generation. So there's so many themes here that are yeah. so resonant. No, I think there's something there. Hmm. Thank you. Um, let's see. Tell uh, tell us about your revolutionary new model for the development of TV pilots. Ah, right. So uh, I can only uh, it's I know proprietary. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll have dinner. And we'll talk, yes. tell you yeah. all about it. All um, right. But in short, the idea right. is, as you know, there's an enormous amount of capital wasted on the pilot process. Right. Hundreds of I millions agree. of dollars. Totally agree. The failure rate is eighty-five percent. Uh, yep. You're telling me that. Any other business out there would survive an 85% yeah, failure rate. You're right. So uh, having been in the business, having observed it, um, it's very apparent to me that there's a model sort of quasi-studio system under mm-hmm. which more material could be created for 20% of the price right. that the studios are doing it for. Right. But they're so locked into the mentality of the way things are done. Well, the feature world is certain, having the same problem. Same problems. Yeah. And now with... Um, uh, decreasing revenues across the board yeah. uh, in both television and film, right. they are going to have to do something. They have to do a new model. I think so. Yeah, um, they do. And so, without a doubt. I mean, am I wrong? No. Okay. So no. I think that uh, if I can get the kinks kind of worked out of it, it's something which I think could fundamentally change how television uh, gets made and hopefully will also lead to increased quality and, and viewer uh, engagement. But what I love about that is like after, so we're talking about how you evolve out of being a working television writer yeah. and what do you use your value in what you learned and move toward a new destination. Yes. So how was your transformation transcendence in figuring all that out. Yeah, well, it was, as you said, it was really sort of devastating at first to have to say, you know what, I have to walk away from this. What the heck do I do now? Yeah. Uh, And so it started out very slowly, and I started doing just some financial journalism for The Motley Fool because I knew about companies and, and money. Uh, and gradually started doing more and more financial journalism because I realized I'm just telling another story. It's the story of a company. Mm-hmm. It's a story of their product. It's a story of how they interact with consumers. What, uh, what does how their money flowing, how does that tell a story? Does it tell a story of success or are they in trouble? Right. All of that's just I interpreted that. through story yeah. and then you know, give it to the audience to read it to hopefully make a decision as yeah. to whether or not they want to invest. Um, and then... It's just the way things go. I fell into the numbers tell a story. Uh, the numbers totally tell a yep. story, and uh, will give you more information than what any CEO is telling you mm-hmm. in words. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I just fell into this one area uh, that I happen to really kind of understand and connect with, and hooked up with an entrepreneur 
and we ra- went out, raised some money together, got a bank line, and we launched a small private equity fund right. in this one particular area, which I became an expert in. Right. And we made some good money there. I became more of an expert. Right. And more importantly, I was actually welcomed into that community of that particular sector because I'd been writing about it. Right. And no one had been writing about it. Yeah. And no one had been writing about it in a nice way. Yeah. So all of a sudden, I I'm getting it. calls from CEOs. From CEOs. Yeah. Saying, oh, we could come be part of our little group. And I'm like, yeah. If I try to put a call to the CEO of, you know, Time Warner, I ain't getting through. Right. You know? Right. Uh, so the transition had to do with um, focusing then on uh, a skill that I had. Yeah. Continuing to develop it, but using story. It's, yes. Everything is all about story, yeah. as it turns out. I love so it. So it went from whether it was money, it was raising money, talking to capital. Yeah. Telling, trying to uh, get a hedge fund or private equity fund to put money into a certain company, I right. can tell them the story of that company yeah. and the people behind it and yeah. the strategy. It's all story. I love it. I do. I think that is fantastic. And I I love that people need to, you need to, from the beginning of your career as a writer now, start thinking like an entrepreneur. Yes, totally. From day one. Yes. Like, what is this going to lead me towards? Yeah. And, and you have to, in order to be successful, especially in TV and film, but I would encourage people, you've got to think way beyond TV and film. Yeah. You have I to agree. think new media. You have to think any kind of story-based anything. Yeah. If you can do it, you will be able to not only turn that into work, but probably something that you enjoy. I agree. Because story is fun. It is. And it and it and and you just have to story, get your mind like, out, out yeah. of the venue that it's television or film. It is. No, I totally, totally couldn't, could not agree with you more. Looking at your own life, what would be the ideal picture as far as your writing career in the next five years? Story career, yeah, I uh, should say communication. Well, no, story I mean, it's career. interesting. Certainly, uh, look, I love television and film, and that will always be sort of my my prime directive, and it mm-hmm. still is. Uh, mm-hmm. I've got a couple of screenplays; they're written. One is ultra low budget, couple million, and others about nine million. Mm-hmm. And the idea is now that I have all this. Uh, access to capital. Right. My goal is in the next five years to get that capital invested in uh, one or both of these films. Excellent. And direct it and produce it and control as much of the process as I can. Right. And then hopefully make people at least get their money back and hopefully a return on their investment. Have you read the book Bankroll? Uh, uh, yes, uh, yeah, by one Tom, of Michael Weezy's, uh, Yeah, Tom Malay. I had him in here, and right. that's exactly what he did. Oh. And he actually just wrote Bankroll 2. Oh, he did? It's going to be coming out. Oh, yeah. Okay. All and right. it's all about, he was an actor, he wasn't getting parts, so what he did was he learned finances, mm-hmm. and he learned how to raise a lot of money mm-hmm. for people's films, mm-hmm. and through doing that, he was able to cast himself mm-hmm. in as he got bigger into roles that he wanted. Well, then it know? sounds like he and I yeah. should probably yeah. talk. I agree. Uh, I agree. I can hook yeah, you guys up email-wise. Yeah, um, I will. Uh, that'd yeah. be great. And then my other goal was to try to get some kind of television project off the ground. I thought I had the rights to a gigantic book series, and then right. it turned out that the studios decided to renew their option and mm-hmm. buy it out and lock it away and throw oh, up the key, although yeah. they'll probably never produce it. Oh. So that kills. But that, and then also to continue as a communications professional, right. telling stories uh, and helping out companies that need their stories to be told in right. some way. I love it. I think that is fantastic. And I, you've shared like information that's different than stuff we've covered, and that makes me even more excited. What advice would you have for 
I, I don't even want to just say new writers. I want to say writers who want to create longevity, writers who are starting out, as well as writers who are hitting their peak and mm -hmm. thinking about what's next. Well, don't think of yourself as a writer just for what you are writing for at the moment. You're a storyteller. Uh, the Internet has now given us, I mean, I can't even tell you, countless opportunities to um, make a career. And you should be become an expert in at least one thing, start blogging the crap out of it, get out of the Huffington Post if you can, get out onto one of the big websites if you can, uh, one of Breitbart's um, sites, and start writing uh, because you're going to get noticed. I've gotten countless jobs because of the blogging work mm -hmm. that I do, uh, whether too. it's uh, yeah. blogging, whether it's investing uh, writing. Uh, the more you make your presence known on the Internet through your writing, the better, more longevity you're going to have. And you got to let go of your ego in terms of saying, I am a film writer, I am a TV writer. Well, you know what? The 18-year-olds don't think of it as film and television and internet. They just see content. And so that's what you're dealing with. That's the new way of thinking. Content. Yes. On every platform. Correct. I love it. What, and now looking at, after viewing, interviewing all of the tremendous writers for your book, um, in thinking about like where they're at in their lives and what what they're going to do next versus what you're doing next. I mean, how did that influence you? Like going into all the story of all these people, did that influence the direction you took? Um, I think so, because if I like when I look back at all the lessons that I ended up writing for the book mm -hmm. and then taking away from it. How long did the book take? Um, well, the, the inv interviews went over several years. Wow. The actual writing of it and distilling it down probably That's took, what a, I thought, took because, about a year. Yeah, uh, It was always about you know finding people to have time to, yeah. to sit down and talk. It took about a year to, to write and to actually then transcribe, edit, and then do all the... Right. things and then it was uh, university press process for publication don't ever do it it's too like two years of nightmare wow um but uh the takeaway was really i think this idea of looking at the process of creativity holistically and not um focusing on the process it's all about the process because the product is transitory. You you grow as a person. Your purpose here on earth, your time here on earth is dependent on the process, not on the product. Yes. And uh, the more you uh, worry about that and not worry about um, how it's going to turn out or who's going to see it, you're going to be much better off because we become uh, more fulfilled as human beings once we have achieved new levels of... Um, uh, it, once we self-transcend. Great. Uh, which is what, in fact, Mr. Barlow always talked about. Uh, not didn't talk about, that's what I discovered his life was about, was self-transcendence. Yeah. Um, fascinating That's what that. it's about. I'm, I'm reading a book called The New Human that is mind-blowing. Like, mm. you, when you hit those books where you're like, oh, my God, this book was, like, written. Like, I'm supposed to hear these words right now at this point in time. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just crazy how yes. it, it it connects and how many people are evolving to a higher consciousness and this book is all about moving away from the I mm -hmm. and into community and unity and the idea of something much bigger mm -hmm. the divine wow. and much greater and and I love that so that 
is a great way to end this on. Thank you so much for joining us. Can, I, uh, can I pitch my websites here while I'm with Absolutely. you? Absolutely. Okay, you, so, yes. yes. All right, so uh, the Inside the TV Writer's Room is available at tvwritersroom.com. Uh, and you can learn about the book and purchase it there as well. Also, the memoir, uh, Teacher of the Year, is available at mrbarlow.com. And only for Jen's audience, if you would like a customized autographed copy of both books, send me a note to tvwritersroom at gmail.com for $39. Include shipping. I'll customize whatever you want send it over to you it's much more expensive otherwise awesome thank you i love that that is a great deal and i highly highly recommend it uh okay well this has been terrific and let me think i have a few announcements i'm going to be speaking at the great american pitch fest i'm going to be teaching the class writing the tv pilot on june 2nd so you can look up the great american pitch fest 2012 and sign up for it. I am also doing a preview webinar for my publisher, Michael Weezy Productions, on Friday. That's a sneak preview of what I'll be teaching, and that is free. It's a half hour. It'll be from 11 to 11.30 on Friday, and you can get that link at Michael Weezy Productions Film School, or you can look on my Facebook page. I have it posted up there. And I'm going to be speaking in Hawaii at the Big Island Film Festival on May 24th. I'm going to be teaching a television class there. And let me think, what else do I have going? I'm going to be going to London with the TV Writers Summit June 24th and June 25th. So if any of you listeners out there are in London... I hope to meet you at the TV Writers Summit. I will be there with Chad Gervich and Alan Sandler and Troy DeBoyd, and we will be covering television from top to bottom. Uh, this is Jen Grisanti of StoryWise Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to StoryWise with Jen Grisanti. If you're looking to get to the next step in your career and need a guide who has been there and knows what it takes, go to www.jengrisanticonsultancy.com. On the website, you can also find the latest on writing programs, feature film festivals, and other writing competitions. This podcast was recorded at the studios of Icebox Logic.